It's a great song, and we're going to look at a scripture passage in just a moment that uh, draws us into the, to reflect in a deeper way about God's mercy. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day. What a gift this is, and we're, we're thankful that we can come together to worship, to lift our voices, our hearts together, Lord, in, in worship to you. And we are blessed, Lord. We're just so blessed to be able to do that today. And we gather, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your glory. And, uh, and now, Lord, we come to your word. We pray your spirit to help us today as we look into your word. May your spirit, again, I pray, lead us into all truth. Help us see Jesus in a fresh way, Lord. And um, we, just, we, just, we just lift you up, Lord. We, we thank you. We pray for your, your help right now, Lord. We, we come to you in our weakness, but, Lord, it's there that we, are, we rely upon your power and we find new strength. And um, so just, just come now in this moment, we pray. And we ask all of these things in and through the wonderful, precious name of Jesus. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It is real good to be together, good to welcome you. Uh, also, um, as been mentioned, we're going to gather out in the atrium for, uh, for some lunch together. But also, during that time, there's uh, a newcomer's lunch as well happening in the West Room, I believe, which is just behind here, I also believe. I'm not good with directions yet. But uh, come, and, come and ask someone where the West Room is, and they will, they will tell you. I might be asking where the West Room is also. Uh, but if you're new here this morning, if you're fairly new to Philpot, uh, we would invite you to come and join me and some other people for lunch as we just talk about our church and uh, talk about the good things that are happening here and, and hopefully how you might be able to get better connected. So uh, if you haven't previously signed up, that doesn't matter. You can still welcome to come and join us today and, uh, and let's, get, uh, let's get to know each other a little bit better. The summer of uh, 2017, uh, many of the news networks were carrying a story of uh, a family that had uh, got caught in a riptide in Panama City Beach in Florida. And about uh, close to eight to ten of this family had gotten uh, caught in this riptide. And, um, and people were just unable to, to get to them. And uh, it was a bit of a tense time. Take a quick look at this short video. It's a testament to the power of the human spirit. 80 strangers coming together to form a human chain 100 yards into the treacherous waters of the Gulf of Mexico. All to save the lives of 10 strangers who were swept out to sea by a vicious rip current, tearing them away from the shore. So here is this family caught out of this riptide. And, and all of a sudden, people started forming this human chain. And, of course, I was thinking about this image, you know, as you have close to 80 people eventually are wading out into, into, the, into the sea. Their arms are locked, and they're anchored to the people on the beach. And, and people of different backgrounds and, and different ages and gender and ethnicity, all, all brought together in that moment by a common purpose. 
And as I, as I think about that, that image of people locked arm in arm, they're anchored to the shore, it, it kind of brought me back this week to what we've been talking about over the past several weeks. That all of us who have been transformed by God's saving power, we are anchored together to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And all of us together are anchored, we, we, we anchor our missional mandate in Christ. And I would suggest to us today that, that our God is ascending God and, and we're a going people. And, and last week we talked about how that relates to our vocation, the, the, the relation between our, our faith and our vocation and, and how God calls all of us into different sectors of society. Well, this morning, as we build upon that, I want to bring you uh, to the biography of Jesus according to Matthew. And, and there's another image here in our scripture text today that helps us see another layer of God's kingdom. And it's an image that appears quite frequently in the life and ministry of Jesus, and in fact, the life of the early church, and it's the image of a table. So if you have your Bible there, please take it out or turn on your Bible app, or, or you can look at the screen there, but we're turning to Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 9 to 13. Matthew chapter 9, the gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. The scripture says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many Tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick so go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. May God bless the reading of his word. So let's, let's dive into this text, shall we, before we share in communion together. Matthew 9 Verse 9 says, the text begins, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, who's a fan of taxes? Um, you know, as, as you know, we're in the midst of, of, of a federal election, and everyone is telling, uh, telling us about how much more money they're going to put in our pockets. Taxes, um, taxes are not all that popular. 
They weren't popular in the context of, of our scripture reading. And we're introduced to Matthew. Uh, Matthew was a tax collector. He's identified here in our text as a, as a tax collector. And Jesus interacts with Matthew at his tax booth. And so M Matthew is most likely perhaps collecting uh, tolls or maybe custom customs duties as people pass from one province into the next. And, and what may be difficult for us uh, as the modern reader to appreciate is just how despised Matthew was. If you were a tax collector in the ancient world, in this setting, you were especially hated. Matthew would have been viewed almost like a Jewish middleman, collecting levies for the occupying power, in this case, Rome. And so, tax collectors were viewed as religious and political traitors. Matthew was probably also viewed as a professional extortionist. And here's how this would often work. You know, there'd be a set amount of tax that had to be paid to the governing authority, and that alone would be quite a hefty price. But then tax collectors like Matthew would also add on an additional fee to kind of line his own pocket. And that fee could fluctuate depending on the circumstances. So Matthew is part of a group viewed as totally corrupt, a traitor, and easily among the most hated men in Hebrew society. In fact, if you look at verse 10, the tax collectors were often lumped together with, as Matthew says, sinners in general. And, and the term sinners here most likely is referring to people, to those who flagrantly break God's moral law. And so along comes Jesus, and, and what does he do? Well, he picks out Matthew. The gospel writer Mark, writing about this same, this same account, says that there were crowds coming to Jesus at, at this particular time. But Jesus draws out Matthew. He draws out perhaps the one person who's showing no interest at all. And so what do we, what do we, make, what do we make of this? I, I, I think the calling of Matthew is in a very vivid way providing a sense of what God's new work looks like. As N.T. Wright suggests, the times were indeed changing. And God's new world was being born. And from now on, everything would be different. And so the question then for us is, well, are we living in this new world? Are we joining Jesus in this this new revolutionary work. And so Jesus approaches Matthew at, at, his, at this tax booth, and he says, Matthew, follow me. And, you know, and if, if, if reading this for the first time, you know, it, it's, it's striking. Matthew gets up and follows. 
he, he left his booth and, and follows Jesus. It seems that Matthew, it seems that Matthew is leaving his way of life behind, and Jesus' invitation here, follow me, is, is cast in a very similar way as he called his first disciples. Uh, if you go back earlier in Matthew's gospel, there's the account where Jesus calls uh, Peter and Andrew, and the text says that they left their nets and followed. They're, they're, and then in that same text, uh, James and John are called to follow, and the text says they left their boats. And so, you know, Peter and Andrew left their nets, James and John left their boats, and Matthew left his tax booth. And they're all making this decision to follow Jesus. They heard this call from Jesus, follow me. And they, and they follow. Now, again, imagine reading this for the first time, and I think we, we're struck by the fact that this man actually responds and follows. And Matthew leaves the rather lucrative tax booth and follows Jesus. And so we're, we're struck with questions. Is this the first encounter between Jesus and Matthew? Or, or is this the culmination of a, a prior relationship that was established and, and Matthew has been brought along to this, to this moment of decision? Well, the text is rather silent. But nevertheless, Jesus calls, Matthew hears, Matthew responds and follows Jesus. Calling of Matthew... Uh, here, as I thought about that this week, it, it, it brought me back to a verse from our text last Sunday morning where God assures the Apostle Paul in Acts 18 and 10, he says, I have others in this city who are my people, right? So, that's a good question. Who are Jesus' people? Who are Jesus' people? Look at verses 10 and 11. Picture this, picture this in your, in your mind now. Try to imagine this. As, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Can you, can you picture this scene in your imagination? Listen to, uh, listen to Eugene Peterson, who says, Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. And when the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher, acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? God has a way of showing up at tables, doesn't he? It's worth noting that at the center of the spiritual life of God's people throughout the Bible is a table. Table of Passover. Table of communion. One of the last images in the Bible in Revelation is that of a table, a banquet table. Uh, Kendall uh, Vanderslice wrote a book called We Will Feast, Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God. And, and she says this, that Jesus' ministry took place almost exclusively around the context of food. And as he spoke, 
He served meals. He told parables about food. And then he asked his followers to eat together and to feed others. God has a way of showing up at tables. How significant is, is, is the table, that whole table imagery in your own life? You know, I, I got to thinking about that in my own life and, and how important the table has been in my own life and, and journey. I, 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 grew up, I grew up in a home where just about every evening we gathered around what we called back east the supper table. Now, it might be the dinner table for some, but for us, it was the supper table. <laughs> and just about every night, we gathered around the supper table as a family. Most nights, it was nothing out of the ordinary, but there was always this rhythm at the end of, of the day of gathering around that table. You know, that, that's continued on in our own lives, and for as long as, as we can remember when it's, been, when it's been possible and most times it's been possible we as a family have, have always ended up at the end of all of our days at the table now I get you know sometimes it's easier to treat the kitchen like a cafeteria and everyone comes through with their tray, grabs their food heads up to their bedroom, goes back to snapchatting or whatever it is you want to do or watch television and something it can be easier, I get it. <laughs> I mean, sometimes our supper table has been pretty chaotic. Especially when, when the kids were, were younger, it can be very chaotic. But even now, they're older, still chaotic. We had a few chaotic moments this week around the supper table. But that rhythm of meeting around that table has been very formative. Even when you don't realize that, it, 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 it has that, that cumulative effect of creating that sense of, of togetherness. And even I think of special occasions when, when other family members have been drawn in around that table. But in special moments, and even when it's just mundane, there's that rhythm of gathering at the table that is formative, that draws us in together, that, that often opens up conversations, that, that, that brings up things that normally probably would not have been brought up if we had, were not established in that rhythm of gathering around a table. Table. Fellowship. I remember when, when Angie and I first started dating, um, I, I wanted to cook supper at one time. And, and it was a very fancy menu. It was French fries, it was ground beef, and gravy. If you've never had that, you come and, come and talk to me, I'll give you the recipe. But, but there, there's something special. There's something formative about table fellowship, about eating together. Uh, I, I remembered this week about some very other profound moments of my life. I have a picture there to, of, 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 to show you. Um, go to that, that first picture of, of a table. Yeah, here, 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 here is Angela and I around uh, a bowl of, of, of rice and chicken. Esther, you, you, you know about this, right? Well, what's it called again? Here, that's, how that's what it's called. <laughs> exactly what she said. 
So here, here we are with, with, with spoons uh, gathered around this common bowl in, in Senegal, West Africa, you know, meeting with a, a, young, a young native worker there. I mean, in, on this same trip, we were able to gather around our, our, our sponsor child and, and share together formative moments. Next picture, another, uh, here, here I, I was in Senegal, West Africa, there uh, preaching at a dedication service of a, ch- of a church, a village church that we built for, for this congregation, and here's, here's dinner being prepared for the hundreds of people that were coming out to this, uh, to this uh, service. Table fellowship. And maybe now you can think of in your own life these, these formative moments that have happened around a table. I've met with mentors of mine around a table, and as we've talked about, you know, they've spoken into my life. These moments that happen around a table, some of the most precious, intimate, and faith-forming moments of my life have happened around a table. Table fellowship was the most intimate social custom in Jewish society, and to share a meal was a sign of intimacy and identification. And most pious Jews knew who they could eat with and who they couldn't eat with. And this is at the heart of the question of the religious leaders in verse 11. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is Jesus showing such disregard for our social structure and expectations? Why is he disregarding our purity laws and our commonly accepted social values? Because, yeah, I mean, table fellowship was an intimate social custom, but table fellowship also served as an important means of defining social and religious boundaries, specifically who's in and who's out. And so why is Jesus at this table? Why does Jesus call out Matthew? Why is Jesus at Matthew's house at his table surrounded by broken, sinful, immoral people? I would submit to you that Jesus came to show us what God's new work looks like. And that Jesus is showing us what the inbreaking of the kingdom of God looks like. Verses 12 and 13, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. And so here, Jesus views himself as a doctor who had come to heal the sick, those who were, who were sick with sin. And Jesus is, is saying, Pharisee, you of all people should know that the Messiah comes to save sinners. And I've, I've come to call sinners. I've come to call people who are far from God. And then Jesus quotes from the prophet Hosea. And he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And what's behind those words? And at the heart of the prophet Hosea's words is a warning against religion, which is all external. This this preoccupation with ritual purity that overrides concern and care for those in need. 
And so Jesus is confronting a ritualistic and external observance that takes the place of love and mercy. Because the gospel takes us all the way into mercy. Mercy that is pure and counterintuitive. And the mercy that the gospel brings us into is so counterintuitive that we must learn what it means and how it works and how it changes us. And so what does Jesus say? Go and learn what this means. It's so counterintuitive that Jesus' instruction is go and think about this. Go and, go and reflect upon this. Go and pray about this. Go and, go and try to process what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so here in this text, we're given a picture of the mercy of Jesus. We're seeing God's new work in the world, and it's around a table of mercy with Jesus as the gracious and loving host. And I mean, Jesus never apologized for getting on the inside with perceived outsiders. But some people hated him for it. I mean, turn over to Matthew chapter 11, verses 18 and 19. You have this rather familiar text. It says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And so Jesus was up against it. I mean, John the Baptist had led a life of self-denial, uh, monastic, and people found it hard to take, and they said, look, he's, he's possessed with a demon, the way he lives. Jesus came celebrating the kingdom of God and uh, attending feasts and parties, and people accused him of being a rebel, a friend of sinners. I mean, it reminds me of, of this advice. Don't, don't spend time explaining yourself to people who are committed to misunderstanding you. <laughs> don't spend your time explaining yourself to people who are committed to misunderstanding you. Jesus is providing for us this morning, friends. A picture of God's new work. Jesus, a friend of sinners, he came to call sinners, to seek and save lost people. And so he's crossing boundaries and he's taking risks and he welcomed and he welcomed and greeted children no one else had time for. He welcomed sinners others didn't. He looks at people not with disdain but with compassion. You see, the point of our scripture text is not so much how Matthew was converted but who was converted. And who was converted? Matthew, the, the outcast, the outsider. And I think the main point of this text, again, is that Jesus came to call sinners. Jesus is close to those who know they are far from him. But that's why he came. And so there's a real, there's a real missional aspect to this text. It forces us, I think, to confront our own bias and tendencies about who is invited to the table. It, it might confront us about what God is calling us to as a people, as, as a church. Well, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? What does it mean for us as a church to be a neighborhood church? 
Have you ever thought about, you know, what your neighborhood looks like? Who, who's in your neighborhood? What does your neighborhood look like? There's, there's the young lady serving you lunch who is struggling with her gender identity. There's the neighbor consumed with materialism, grasping for everything that life has to offer. There's the guy at work who's committing adultery and destroying his life and family. There's the middle-aged woman trying to stay above water. She battles her inner demons. There's the 78-year-old woman who just lost her husband of 54 years. Who's in your neighborhood? And if someone said, keep looking and you'll find just about everyone... You'll find the, the, the atheist and the mocker and the scoffer and the intellectual, the, the struggling, the broken, and the one who thinks they have it all together. But what we all have in common is that we are people who need Jesus. That we are people who need Jesus. Lost People matter to God, and that's why Jesus is at this table. Jesus came to save sinners, and in a sense, Jesus is running a rescue shop, and at the center of this mission is a table. And the fact that a table is at the center of Jesus' rescue mission is very profound. The table here is an image of mission and grace. It The table speaks of relationship because the gospel works best in the context of relationships, doesn't it? Eating is is one of the most basic human functions and table fellowship creates space to know other people in, in deep and different ways. The table is significant, I think, because our goal as believers is not to alienate or condemn, but to foster meaningful relationships that plant gospel seeds. Tim Chester writes about the connection between food and grace and says that that food expresses our dependence on God and other people. It embodies friendship and, and welcome. Table fellowship has a way of drawing people in and for Jesus. And so outsiders become insiders around a table. And so by means of a table, Jesus expresses God's grace through his willingness to eat with everyone. In just a moment, we're going to gather around tables out in the uh, atrium. We're going to eat together first Sunday of every month after we share in communion, we're all invited to gather out for lunch together, and we're going to gather around tables, and you're all invited to stay. Someone said that a meal savored with other glorious image bearers does not save the world, but it helps restore our hearts in order to keep moving through it. And, and we hope that happens for you today. It's our hope that as you gather with other people around a table, that it helps you, helps you keep going through this thing called life.
But before we gather around tables in the atrium, we're going to gather around another table represented by these smaller tables here around, around the front. The table of the Lord, we refer to it as, or the communion table. I, I like when N.T. Wright says that when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give, give them a theory, he gave them a meal. And on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus gathers his disciples in a room and around a table. And there's, there's the sharing of bread, the breaking of bread. There's a meal. There's wine. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, repeat this action. Gather around tables, share bread and wine as a means of remembering my death. Because regularly remembering the significance of Jesus' death is a fundamental activity of Christians. And so this morning, as Jesse and the worship team return, the table, this table, reminds us that we are all recipients of God's grace. And as all of us who have been transformed by God's saving power gather around the table of the Lord, the communion table, I'd encourage us to, to the following. As we gather, friends, let us remember God's abundant provision. Let us, let us remember that God has done everything necessary for you and I to be included around the table. That God has made the provision. That God has done the work. That God has offered us grace so that we can know Jesus. Let us remember that the grace that was purchased in Christ's death is the same grace we need when we come to the table. There may be some of you, you have this sense of not being worthy to come to this table Friends, friends, please be reminded that God's grace is here in this moment and, and, and you're not worthy because of anything that you have done or how well you've performed this week. You are worthy because Jesus Christ has saved you and has done a work of grace in your life. And so the invitation to us all today is come to the table because of what Jesus has done. As we come to the table this morning, let us, let us enjoy and worship him. Let us remember that our needs are met. Let us remember that Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies our greatest longings. And as we come to the table, let us recalibrate our lives according to what's being remembered. Because every time Every time we share in communion, we proclaim the gospel. Every time we share, we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim it, and we believe it, and we embrace it. And it's this reminder to us that I hope creates this renewed missional impulse to invite others around the table. That because of the grace of God that we have experienced, we want to extend that grace to others. 
I mean, that's why Jesus is at that table in Matthew 9. He's there because he cares about those who are far from God. He's come to offer salvation. And this morning, we invite you, all of us who have been transformed by God's saving power, we invite you to come and share in this moment. If you're visiting, you're new with us, we invite you to come with us around the table. What binds us all together around this table is God's saving work. And we celebrate that today. And we come with grateful hearts for what Jesus has done. Let's stand together. We're going to invite you to come together from each section. If you're, again, if you're new, you're visiting, we're all moving to, to, to your left as you come out of your pew and come here and go back into your pew again. Those at the front have the esteemed privilege of showing you how this works. So if it's confusing, you just kind of, it's one of those moments where you just fall in line. You do what everybody else is doing. That's not always good advice, but in this moment, it kind of works out. Let me pray before we come. Lord, thank you for this moment. Thank you for the image of the table. Lord Jesus, you, you, you showed us what it's like to demonstrate mercy as you gathered around a table with people who are considered to be outsiders. And in that moment, Lord, you, you, you just draw us in to be a people of mercy. Lord, because you've shown us mercy, we want to extend that to others. And Lord, now as we gather around your table, this, this place where we celebrate together your, your saving work, Lord, we come, Lord, with a sense of gratitude. We, we come thanking you for your work, God. We're coming reminding ourselves that we have done nothing to earn your favor or your salvation. But, but, but your, 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 your salvation is entirely a gift of your grace that we receive. And Lord, if there are those here right now in this moment um, who have not responded to your invitation to follow, your invitation to be saved, we pray that in this moment, Lord Jesus, uh, that you will call, that people will believe and will follow you in this moment. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Come and, come and receive this morning, friends, as the team leads us.
God's grace were gathered around his table. Emblems that represent his, his broken body and his blood. It's reminding us of the grace that has been extended to us. Just take a moment, would you just close your eyes and just go ahead and thank Jesus for his work in your life. Just go ahead and thank him this morning, in this moment. Thank him for his grace, for his mercy. Amen. Thank you, Lord.
from our hearts today, Lord, we offer you thanks. From our hearts, Lord, we celebrate your great saving work. Scripture says that Jesus gathered around a table and broke bread. We encourage us to share that together. So let's eat the bread together this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your broken body, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you minister to us in our own brokenness, Lord. Scripture says they share the cup representing the blood of Jesus. And every time we, we drink this cup, we, we proclaim the Lord's death. This is a sermon all in itself as we proclaim the blood of Jesus, his saving work. Let's drink together. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to pray together, but we have some, there might, there might be those of you here this morning and you, uh, you've come and you'd like for someone to pray with you. We have some, we have some people that uh, are going to find themselves in, in different places here around the front and uh, someone up on the balcony, you, you'll, you'll find them with a... Uh, with a, a lanyard there, and Jesse's just going to sing a, just a verse of that song one more time before we, before we pray corporately. But if there's someone here this morning and you would like prayer in, in your own life, you'd like for someone to pray for you, uh, come, I can pray for you. Others are here around the front over here, other places around the, the uh, auditorium here, and they would be happy to pray for you this morning before we leave.